welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. Syosset Libraries Turn the Page podcast. I am your host, Jessica, and I am here with um, an author who wrote this really interesting book, and it's been blurbed by like William Kent Kruger and all of these amazing authors, which must like, it's it's like the book is great, and then it's being propped up by great authors, which should definitely indicate that you should be reading it. Um, And it's called The Fireballer, and it's like a book about baseball. It's a book about guilt. It's a book about just so many different things um, and emotions that I can't really put it into words. So I'm actually going to invite the author to introduce himself and kind of just describe the book in his own words and just um, tell us where it came from. Well, first of all, thanks a million, Jessica, for having me on. I sure appreciate it. And I can tell you how all those Jenner's blurbs came about, um, has to do with having a good network, of course, and uh, having some friends in the writing community. The Fireballer is really two um, stories in one, in my mind. And um, the the second half of the story would never have happened if my friend had mentioned the first half. And my friend and I, uh, 30, 30 years or so of trading books and reading mostly crime fiction, thrillers, we both big crime fiction fans and both big baseball fans. And um, for years and years, we'd have lunch and chew the fat over books and politics, whatever, baseball too. We both loved the sport. He said one day over a burrito in the park, he said, you know, you should write a book about um, the first pitcher to ever throw a fastball so fast that there's no time left for a batter to swing. And that's the first half of the book. And you know, it's sort of this existential crisis for the sport itself is uh, would the sport survive if we get to the point where pitchers are throwing that fast? And right now at 106 miles an hour, which is the current record, uh, batter has 0.3 seconds to decide whether to swing, where to swing, how to swing, all that good stuff. It's already ridiculous in terms of how fast these balls are coming in. So just to look ahead in the game a little bit was the first half of the book. What would happen existentially to the sport if we get to that point where um, there's no game left, where, you know, the way the rules are set up now, there's no game left. I kind of like that idea. I thought about it. I've only written crime fiction at that point. I had five mysteries out um, in one series. I had a couple standalones that I was working on for my agent, but crime fiction was me. Crime fiction, that was it. I'd go to the crime fiction conferences, belong to Mystery Writers of America, right on down the line. So I didn't, think I could necessarily write a literary novel set in the world of baseball. I'm not saying my book is literary, but it's definitely not a genre book. So anyway, that night, my writer brain must have been cooking by itself or just ruminating on this idea because the other half of the book kind of just came to me, which was a simple question. What if the same pitcher had something really traumatic happen to him in Little League? And perhaps what if one of his pitches hit and killed an opposing player? So I got chills. Uh, I called my friend the next morning. I told him the other half of the idea. And he said, boy, that's it. Go, go. And then I called my agent and bounced the whole thing off him. And he said, go. (laughs) So that's the book in a nutshell. Yeah. And um, so first of all, 
I mean, clearly you love baseball, right? I mean, you know, did you, so as a baseball fan, um, did you have to do any more research into the game or were you just, did you sort of just come to it naturally? And I'm also curious about a few different things you just brought up and about the character of Frank Ryder, who, by the way, I have to say one of my favorite things, like I'm reading the beginning of the book and he's reading Dune. And I love that. I love the, I, I just, I, I love that, that that was the book that he was wanted to read. Um, as a sci-fi person myself, I was like, oh, that's really great. You know, I, and I did not grow up in a sports family, but I, but I am a sci-fi person. And I love that there is an intersection, I think, because there's always been this like standard, like, okay, well, if you're into this, you probably aren't into that. And that's not true. Um, but as, um, as a baseball fan and as a person who has decided to write a book, about baseball, did you find yourself doing any extra research into the nuances of the sport itself? Yes, the answer is yes, and thank God the answer is yes because I got to read more books about baseball and that nothing made me happier. I mean, I just started uh, devouring what I could in the time I was writing and kind of going in different directions, particularly around the issue of pitching and reading books about pitching. Um, and there are, you know, there are thousands and thousands of books about baseball and thousands of good novels as well. Um, but yeah, I just dug in. I, you know, YouTube is also a fantastic resource for pitching, coaching and uh, pitching tips. And there's lots of online um, videos about even how to pitch at the speeds we're talking about. Um, so yeah, I was happily diving into, and my book review archive will show that I was in a real heavy baseball period for about uh, 18 months or so while I was writing that book. And, um, you know, it's just that it was fascinating to me. There's so many different aspects to the game. And that's one of the things I think us fans love about it. The characters in the game, the different uh, biographies I got to read, um, particularly one of Sandy Koufax by Jane Meyer. Um, I got to read Tyler Kepner, the fantastic New York Times sports reporter. He wrote a book, book called The History of Baseball in 10 Pitches. Um, you know, there's just lots and lots of different kind of angles coming into the sport. I particularly liked a couple of the books where we're really getting the player's perspective of what it's like to be in this long slog of a season, 162 games, going from town to town just all the baggage, all the pressure on your time, uh, your life is not your own for, all, you know, eight or nine months of the season. So eight or nine months of the year, I mean. So, yeah, I loved it. Yeah. Um, and um, Frank himself, first of all, he's also a twin, um, which is something that I, I was, uh, did you, why did you decide to make him a twin? I am the mom of twins. So I am always very interested in a story where a character either is a twin or, you know, um, twins are in the story. Well, you know, I mean, he, the, the whole issue back in little league starts with um, that horrific day in the little league park outside Atlanta. And um, it just occurred to me that there's something about the pitcher catcher relationship. And if his brother was the catcher that day, Obviously, the attention is all going to go to the pitcher who threw the ball, all the trauma, all the weight, all the pressure. But if his brother was there, it's no less traumatic. It's no less 
um, heavy a weight to carry with you. And I wanted to contrast the limelight pressure, the obvious pressure on what would happen to Frank and how his parents dealt with that at the time and their decision to move him out of state after they took a year to, um, you know, let things kind of calm down. They pulled him out of school and homeschooled him, but then they said, let's just get out of Atlanta and try to get a fresh start. So they moved to Colorado, they moved to Denver and try to give Frank a new introduction to a fresh batch of classmates who won't see him in the same light. Well, if his brother also comes along, he's just not that, it's just not the same trajectory, at least at first. So I wanted to contrast that. And uh, Frank is a phenom and gets number one draft pick, but Josh is more the workhorse in the trenches trying to work his way up in the sport. And uh, when the fireballer, most of the book takes place, Frank is the number one most talked about sports figure in the country. Josh is working his way up through the minor leagues. Uh, yeah, I thought that, um, you know, and that is, I, I suppose, as the mother of twins and in general, uh, you know, I think even without traumatic events like that, um, it does ring very true that, you know, it's it's almost like you're not in competition, but there is like a sort of dominance in personality um, and in talent, it, you know, like I know my boys, they they have often wanted to do the same thing, but as time goes on, you know, like their abilities are different or their desires are different or just the way they approach things are different. And sometimes it's, you know, it's a little bit of a challenge. Um, so I think like with, um, you know, Frank and Josh, I mean, and also the pitcher in general, I feel like gets kind of just sort of dismissed in the world of baseball. You know, you talk a lot about like, different different um positions you can play but i don't you don't hear as much about catchers yeah yeah well there's there was a phase where catchers were a lot more um prominent in the game and the sport and then the discussion and that position has evolved yet you make a really good point it's sort of overlooked position probably the most overlooked position i think you could make that argument um and what the, the work that they have to do and the they're involved in every single pitch. So, I mean, you can be, run out to right field and never see a ball hit your way the entire game, but the catcher is catching 130 pitches, 140 pitches in a game. Yeah, it's crazy. So the you had mentioned also um, that right now the the most the, the fastest pitch on record is 106 miles an hour. And if you want to see something, just go to YouTube and put in the name uh, Araldus Chapman. Um, he His speed has come down since he was with the Cincinnati Reds. But when he was with Cincinnati, he threw a pitch at 106 miles an hour. And um, there are some other guys who've touched 104, 105. Um, 100 is very common these days. And you at that speed, it's just ridiculous to think about how fast the ball is coming, even at 95, is a, a very, very quick um, pitch, and it just leaves the batter very little time. So 106, there's videos online of actual games where they cut away to the dugout, and you can see the teammates of the pitcher kind of laughing because they're, you know, they're glad they're not at bat trying to deal with that kind of heat coming their way. Yeah. 
I, and I like the whole idea. So you have Frank, who is a phenom, as you mentioned, but he's deeply um, traumatized. He has deep guilt, which is very corrosive and just about this, about killing another player. Uh, but then it's like the thing that caused that is the thing that he's really, really good at and the thing that he's getting attention for. And it's it's almost like i mean i don't want to you know it's i i know it's um literary fiction but as a genre person myself it's almost faustian you know it's like you get this thing that you know you love the game and like the thing that you want the most is to be able to play the game and be and then not only is your talent possibly going to change the game because people are like well is this even fair that he has talent like this you're looking back on how it affected somebody how it ended somebody else's life so it's it's almost like you're in this um this big circle of every it, it looks great you're this you're you're going to they're going to write books about you and you know and you just are sort of circling in this pool of guilt and then like well what's the game going to be because i can actually do this thing exactly exactly and then the other related existential kind of question uh, that he has to grapple with, and this is kind of a spoiler, but not too much, it's more on the philosophical end, is had he not had that incident when he was 12, would he have bared down and focused and practiced and been as sort of you know determined even in his, because his parents pull him out of team sports after that, and he quietly goes about making sure that he is still keeping in good pitching shape and he's still studying it and he still cares about it. But did that drive come from that incident or did it, was that, in, was that always there? And so there's a little bit of a question there. And then of course, you know, as a pitcher, the last thing he wants to do is hurt anybody, but he has to deal with the unspoken unwritten rules of baseball, which is if one of your teammates gets plunked, by a pitch at the plate, you, the pitcher, have to go out there and retaliate. And that's the last thing in the world he wants to do. So, I mean, this is kind of, I guess, a bummer of a question. Are there incidents of people at, at wow, I, he's shaking his head. And like, for, for those who are listening, because uh, like I said, this is, this is not video. I was going to ask, are there incidents of people actually getting killed by pitches that are just so fast? Well, there's been a pitch in the major leagues that goes back um, quite a ways, um, and I'd have to pull up the name, you know, with a quick search. There have been some really horrific injuries, including Tony Knigliero, who, when I was a fan growing up outside Boston, he was a right fielder for the Red Sox, and he got hit in the eye. Um, this is pre-batting helmet days, and his career was basically ended. Um, there there are lots and lots of injuries in um, uh Little leagues and other leagues, high school, there's actually was an incredible video this past summer of a pitcher in little leagues who um, threw a ball that hit a kid in the head. And the kid was okay. He went to first base, but the pitcher could not keep going because he was so scared about what he was doing. And uh, the, the kid who ran to first base after being sort of checked out and everything ran to the pitcher's mound and gave the pitcher a hug and said, you got to keep pitching. It's okay. You know, this is part of the game, but um, yeah, there people are getting hurt and hit all the time. And beanball wars are a thing. If you don't know that whole issue of retaliation 
is an actual thing. And their web pages will walk you through the worst beanball cases in major league history. That is absolutely nuts. Um, yeah. It is, it is nuts. And, and as the book says, and I've heard others say, I, well, this is not an original thought on my part, but if a pitcher can throw a ball and purposely hurt somebody, why can't a batter walk out to the mound with his baseball bat and take one good free swing at a pitcher and just hit him anywhere he wants to? I mean, it's barbaric. Yeah, it really, really is. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> so so one thing, I just to kind of take um, a left turn, um, I want to just ask you, so you structured the book in um, different parts. Um, how did you kind of, uh, and I know you mentioned that one part of the story came before another. How did you decide to separate the parts of the story? Well, you know, First of all, I, I it took a while to figure that part out. I did think I wanted to break it down by month. So there's a month segment to it uh, going through because there's a certain rhythm to the baseball season. So I separated them by months. But I also thought in terms of um, Frank's journey, there's a really clear marking point where, um, first of all, where he's got the current, we, we've, we've talked about his current problem, the beginning of the book, the first big chunk of the book is, life as we know it for Frank Ryder, which is tons of pressure. He's number one draft pick. He's with the Baltimore Orioles. He's helping them kind of rise up in the, in their division. There's just all sorts of coverage about him as a player. So we've got that kind of issue. And then we get to the, um, not the inciting incident, but just the place where everything changes for Frank, which is when he gets into one of these situations with retaliation and what he's asked to do. And I won't go into what happens but that is the other big moment. So then he's sort of off on his, I guess I'd call it odyssey. He has to go on this journey and he's isolated. He's alone. He doesn't know what's happened to him. Um, and basically it's a search for himself and he's looking for guidance everywhere he can. When he gets through that process at the end of that tunnel, very dark tunnel, but when the light shines, then we're back to the third part. So it seemed to kind of fall kind of naturally. And um, it, that all came organically. I didn't, I'm not an outliner. I just go by the seat of my pants. So, yeah. Yeah, I was going to, I was actually going to ask that. And as a crime fiction writer, do you write, did you find that you kind of write that way too? Um, did you write, did you approach this one very differently than with your crime fiction? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm a seat of the pants writer in the crime fiction world too. And I just, uh, I, if I were to write an outline to me, that would be three quarters of the work of figuring out the story. And I would be kind of bored, not bored writing the story, but to me, the exploration and finding the story is the writing process itself. So I just need a, not just, that sounds a little arrogant, but you know, once I have an idea, got my character, I, I know what the basic, um, what the whether it's an one antagonist or several, what the situation is. Once I've got those pieces, I can start writing. In this case, I just needed to find out who Frank was, and start digging in and imagine what it would be like for for a guy in that situation. So I developed Frank, and I developed the owner of the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, developed a character around the owner, and just tried to look at both organizationally how baseball was going to deal with this issue and then deeply personal for Frank, how he was managing this issue and just contrast those two. 
So before signing off, um, so what are some really good books on baseball that you recommend for people to read as maybe a companion to the fireball or even um, uh, biographies? Well, Jane Mayer, uh, Sandy Koufax um, biography, uh, the Mickey Mantle biography that she wrote, uh, just absolutely that, that she has just such a great love of the game. And she's a terrific reporter and fantastic writer. I already mentioned Tyler Kepner's book about pitching. It sounds a little mechanical. It's not. It's full of great stories about baseball and games and game situations. One of my couple of my absolute favorites, uh, Doug Glanville, longtime sort of player uh, with the Cubs, I think, and the Phillies. He wrote a book called um, The Game from Where I See It. I think it's called Doug Glanville. Really uh, just uh, eye-opening insight into today's game and all the pressures on individual players. Um, and I've got to, you know, always give a shout out to the classic uh, Ball Four by Jim Bowden, um, just for that real insight into what's happening with players and how much stuff is happening off the field. That's just the best. And I did go back and reread that as part of my research, but yeah. Are you, um, I, I know you're from the Boston area. Are you a loyal Red Sox fan? Uh, it pains me to say this year that I am because they are, they are I'm just in, I'm, I'm in, in mourning uh, because now the ownership appears to be just not as interested in winning. And that that's part of one of the issues in the, in the fireballer is yeah. why do some teams just go, how can they get away with mediocrity? when we have teams like the Dodgers and the Yankees and St. Louis and, um, you know, on and on Atlanta, uh, right this year, the Mets are just going crazy. And you just have to say, I want to be a fan of a team that cares enough that they're going to put good, the best players on the field. And uh, yeah, I am a Red Sox fan. Well, I certainly, <laughs> I certainly hope it turns back around. I mean, they had like a really, I, I mean, I remember when they, when they won the World Series for the first time in a really, really long time, I was actually at a library conference, and I, I'm like, I'm sort of like, <laughs> I mean, I'm sort of like one of those people because, like I said, I did not grow up in a sports family, which should actually kind of indicate to people that yeah, you should read this book because even if you are not a sports person, there's a lot to enjoy, and if you are a sports person, there's pro there's even more to enjoy. Um, but, you know, as somebody who's just kind of like, I just want people to do their best. I remember, you know, the, the Red Sox won and I knew that they hadn't won in a while. And of course, they were playing against the Yankees and like everybody at my table was a Yankees fan. And this one woman was just, she was so angry. And I'm like, what? They just they, they played so hard. You, the Yankees went all the freaking time. What? Let someone else win, and she was just not having it. But I was like, "Good for them!" Yeah, yeah, totally. One of the classic, classic World Series of all time. Red Sox have had a good run the last twenty years. You know, I think they've won four World Series in the last twenty, twenty some years. Yep. Good. I want ten. You know, that's me, greedy fan. I want to. I at least want to be in the playoffs, deep into the playoffs every year, and that's what you want. And unfortunately, being in Colorado now, I was in Denver for thirty-five years. I was in Denver when the Rockies started, so I've got a National League team. But unfortunately, my two favorite teams are both very mediocre right now. Well, again, I certainly hope it turns around. Um, everybody should check out the Fireballer. And oh, Mark, are you writing anything else at the moment? 
Yes, I'm writing another non-crime fiction book set in the world of rock and roll. So, yeah. Okay, please tell me about that because I am a very big rock and roll fan. All right. Um, Well, I can give you the very basic idea of it. Um, And I I haven't really had a lot of practice describing it. It's about a guy, if you picture Bob Dylan and Jacob Dylan, uh, father and son, and again, maybe there's something there about uh, just pitcher catcher. I don't know relationships, but this book focuses on the son. Uh, it's a different kind of music. It's it's what's rock and roll, but the son lives in this enormous shadow of his father's giant lyrical and musical output for 50 years, 60 years, and he, the son has one hit. Uh, one single hit that he's known for. If I said Jacob Dylan, you would say what song? One Headlight, which is a great song, but it is true because every time I hear that song, I think about, you know, this is this is actually kind of interesting because you know, I'm, I grew up in the 90s and the 60s seems like a really long time ago, but the music was still really big and it is still big. But, you know, I remember like everybody was like, oh my gosh, this is Bob Dylan's son. He's look at him. He's going to be the next, his father. Um, oh, the song, it's so good. Yes, and yes, it's a great song. He just kind of faded into the wind, like one headlight <laughs> into yeah. the night. Okay, so the twist on my book is he's out there touring on this song. He still can draw a you know a crowd. He's gone from planes to buses to vans, you know, because the whole rock and roll industry is collapsing on itself and et cetera, et cetera. But the twist is that one hit he had, he claims to have wrote it, but what if he didn't? So we're talking about that book when it comes out because that (laughs) sounds so interesting. I love it. Wow. Yeah, I'm not going to ask you anymore because I want to read it and then I want to talk to you about it. Um, I want to read it. I want to read it too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, once again, this was Jessica with Syosset Library, uh, Trunk Page Podcast. Oh, you're you're a, you're the son of two librarians, right? Yes, and 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 for for that, I have to say thank you for all you do because I grew up in the best household. I wish I would wish. Wouldn't it be great if we lived in a world where everybody was a son of two or son or daughter of two librarians and just parents who cared about information? Oh, boy. A hundred percent. I mean, my kids are um, my kids grew up literally with books in their hands. And to this day, I like in the mornings, we'll all read together and it amazes me. But it does it does kind of bring up I think about it and I'm just like, I, I know that that's not the standard and that's fine but um i do i am very happy i was able to kind of model that for them so that's my smug librarian pitch read when they say kids who see you reading will become readers they are not lying yeah yep yep and that was my mom Uh, my dad was more on the informational science side my my mother also had her master's degree and all that and um but she was the one who'd come up with a stack full of books on a Saturday and she'd return them the next week and she got so much pleasure out of reading. So, well, I, once again, thank you. Um, so I'm going back to my sign. <laughs> this is Jessica with Syosset Libraries Trudge Page Podcast. Our guest today was 
that's you. Mark Stevens. <laughs> <laughs> and we are going to close this chapter of Turn the Page. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. Join us for the next episode.